are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you've been able to join me, whether you're joining me live. It's 12 o'clock Pacific time on November the 4th, year 2021, or if you're joining me as this is being recorded and made available on our YouTube channel. What we like to do on a Thursday afternoon is come together and offer a time where I'm just available to answer questions about the Bible or the Christian life or anything else that you want to ask. I can't say that I have an answer for it, but you can ask whatever you want. If I don't know, I don't know. Or if it's just my opinion, I'll tell you it's just my opinion. But we'll try to understand the Bible and the Christian life a little bit better here on these Thursday afternoons. Now, I don't know where you are or where you're listening from. That's why we love for our viewers to let us know where they're tuning in from, because we're very grateful for the international audience that we have. Uh, We're grateful for the people who listen from Europe, from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America. We're so pleased that you could join us today. Now, uh, the way we do this is I start off with a lead question, something that comes in by email or social media or some other platform. And then after that lead question, we take the questions that come in on the live chat. And the live chat questions are things that are coming in on the live chat and then submitted to us by our uh, uh, moderator, a man named Devin. Devin's here to give us uh, the pass the questions on to me, and then I respond to him the very best that I can. I do want to say one thing after our lead question today, uh, having to do with where I was this last weekend and part of the Bible tra- Bible commentary translation work that we have going on. But let me get into our lead question for today, and we phrased it like this. Is God or man responsible? And a young woman, uh, she referenced herself being young in her email, a young woman named Autumn asked this question a few weeks back. So here's Autumn's question. She says, first of all, let me say that I very much appreciate your commentary. I use it weekly. It's the first place I go to when I'm re- when what I'm reading in the Bible doesn't make sense. So thank you for such an awesome resource. Well, Autumn, you're very welcome. We're happy to make uh, the Enduring Word Bible Commentary available online for people absolutely free. And if I can say ad-free, or at least paid ad-free um, around the world. Now, her question goes on to say this. I just finished reading the book of Judges. And in Judges 21.15, it says, quoting now Judges 20.15, And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Uh, That's in the New King James Version. And then Autumn says, she says, Yet in your commentary for verses 2 and 3, you write as if it was the responsibility of Israel for this void. To me, it appears that it was his responsibility, that this is the Lord's responsibility. I'm sure there's a reason why I'm wrong, but would you mind explaining? Okay, well, Autumn, I'm very happy to deal with your question, and I just want to say, you're not wrong. I'm going to deal with this question kind of the best I can, but you're saying, hey, doesn't verse 15 of Judges chapter 21 say that it was the Lord's responsibility And didn't I say in my commentary regarding verses 2 and 3 that it was Israel's responsibility? And we got to ask ourselves the question, 
which was it? Was it God's responsibility or was it man's responsibility having to do with the issue that they dealt with in Judges chapter 21? So let me say at the outset, Autumn, you're not wrong in your perspective. And secondly, let's back up just a little bit and look at this question in its fullness. Now, in Judges chapter 20, the tribe of Benjamin was judged for a terrible crime committed in one of their cities, the city of Gebeah. Now, the judgment came through the other tribes of Israel. And when they came to hold the people of the city of Gebeah to account, the rest of the tribe of Benjamin protected Gebeah instead of giving in to them, giving them over to justice. You see, again, Judges chapter 19 describes a terrible, a horrific crime uh, committed in the city of Gebeah. And as we read Judges chapter 19, we're supposed to be revolted by the whole occasion. Now, when Israel came against Gebeah and said, we need justice for this crime that you've committed, unfortunately, the tribe of Benjamin, they protected Gebeah instead of giving them over to justice. So the tribe of Benjamin as a whole committed a great sin when they put loyalty to their tribe before loyalty to God and his law. And might I say just on the side here, that's a principle that endures today. Friends, it is a sin to put loyalty to your tribe, whether your tribe is a race, an ethnic group. A, um, a nation, a community, a civic organization, whatever you might want to call it, it's a sin to put loyalty to our tribe before our loyalty to God and his word. Now, this was an event that happened in Judges chapter 20 that we don't often talk about. This was a brief civil war among the tribes of Israel before they ever even had a king. And on the first day of battle in this short civil war, the soldiers from the tribe of Benjamin, who were apparently some pretty oppressive warriors, they killed 22,000 Israelites from the other tribes, of course. And apparently there were very few men from the tribe of Benjamin killed because they aren't even mentioned. So, on the first day of this short civil war, huge losses for the tribes of Israel other than the tribe of Benjamin. Now, after the defeat on that first day, the men of Israel sought the Lord. Yet on the second day of battle, they lost another 1,800 men. Again, this was a huge cost for doing what was right. Dealing with a tribe that was disobedient and covering for their terrible sin. After the second day of battle, and after 40,000 men were lost in two terrible days, that's what the record of Judges chapter 20 says, Israel then sincerely repented, and then God was with them on the third day of battle. The end of Judges chapter 20 describes a tremendous slaughter of the tribe of Benjamin, and that there were only 600 surviving soldiers from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, friends, 
the tribe of Benjamin was undeniably guilty. But, and again, this is my perspective, my opinion. You may have a different opinion, but my perspective, there was no need for the complete slaughter as was described in Judges chapter 20. This too severe judgment against the tribe of Benjamin would soon be regretted by the rest of the tribes of Israel. All right, that's Judges chapter 20. Then in Judges chapter 21, the tribes of Israel then decided that they would refuse to intermarry with the people of the tribe of Benjamin. And this would essentially mean that the tribe of Benjamin would die out. It would become extinct among the people of Israel with so few remaining men and unable to intermarry with the other tribes. Now, that's when Israel said, and this is in Judges chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, where it says this. Um, uh, let me bring this up on the screen here for you. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that there should be one tribe missing in Israel? All right, so that's the text of Judges chapter 21, verses 2 and 3. And as Autumn pointed out, here is my comment on this text. Uh, you could find it in my Enduring Word Bible commentary there, EnduringWord.com. Go to Judges chapter 21, and you can see what my comment was. It was this. They cried out to God almost as if it was his responsibility that the tribe of Benjamin was on the edge of extinction. The question why has this come to pass? Again, that's back in verse 3 of Judges chapter 21. Was easily answered. It was because of the excessive vengeance of the tribes of Israel against the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Autumn's question is really relevant to Judges chapter 21, verse 15, where it says this, And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Now, I hope you can understand why I'm dealing with Autumn's question, because for me, this is a perfect uh, text to talk about the issue. Was God responsible for this void in the tribes of Israel, or was Israel responsible for this void in the tribes of Israel. Israel, the tribes of Israel, were the ones who conducted what I would regard as an overly excessive war of judgment against the tribe of Benjamin. And they were the ones who decided that they would not intermarry with the tribe of Benjamin. So that makes it sound like it was Israel's responsibility. But then again, we go back to Judges 21.15, and there it seems to clearly say, I don't say it seems to clearly say, it does clearly say that the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. So here's our question. Who was responsible for the almost extinction of the tribe of Benjamin? Was it Israel or was it the Lord? And here's my answer to that question. The answer is yes. Because in some sense, both 
had responsibility. Yes, this was the work of God, and it was the work of God in at least two senses. Number one, it was the work of God in the sense that nothing happens without God at least allowing it. Friends, can we just acknowledge that? There is nothing that happens in this whole universe without God at least allowing it. Now, you and I can go back and we can debate. That's a debate for another time. You know, to what degree is God's allowing it, directing it, or instituting it, or decreeing it? But I'll just say this. Nothing happens in this universe without God at least allowing it to happen. If God wanted to do differently, he could have prevented such a severe judgment of the tribes of Israel against their fellow tribe of Benjamin. If God so wanted it, he could have prevented them from making this oath that they would not intermarry with the people of Benjamin. Nothing happens without God at least allowing it to happen. Okay, so in that sense, it was the work of God. But here's the second sense. In this case, it was also the work of God because he did direct the other tribes of Israel to bring judgment against the disobedient tribe of Benjamin. Now, I would argue that they were excessive in their judgment of the tribe of Benjamin, but nevertheless, it was God directing them to bring judgment against that disobedient tribe. So there's at least two ways in which we would say, yes, amen, to uh, Judges chapter 21, verse 15, this was the Lord's doing. But... I think it's also true in a parallel sense that this was the work of the tribes of Israel. Now, they did right in honoring God by bringing judgment against Benjamin. The city of Gibeah was guilty and the tribe of Benjamin was wrong for not bringing justice against their own city but rather defending them uh, in face of the other tribes of Israel. But again, this is my opinion from the text, but the other tribes of Israel were excessive in their judgment. There was no reason to reduce the tribe of Benjamin down to 600 men of fighting capability. Friends, let's always remember this. Justice may very well mean punishment, but it also means appropriate and proportional punishment. If punishment is not appropriate, and if it, not, if it is not in proper proportion, then that is not justice, even if some kind of punishment is justly merited. So that's number one. This was the work of Israel. But we also can't forget that the original crime in Gebeah you'll find that in Judges chapter 19, provided the initial reason for the judgment. Surely that was the work of the men of Gebeah, not the direct work of God. So that's why I say that it was kind of a strange question for Israel to ask. Israel asked in Judges chapter 21, verse 3, Oh, Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? To me, I think it's pretty obvious that they knew why. 
because they had slaughtered all but 600 fighting men of the tribe of Benjamin, because they had made a law that none of their people could intermarry with the people of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, they knew why. What they really wanted to know from God was what should we do about it? And so they came up with something of a strange solution later on in Judges chapter 21. But apart from that, this reminds us of an important principle and why I was happy to address Autumn's question. Autumn, thank you for your question. In some sense, God is ultimately responsible for everything, at least in what he allows because there's nothing that would happen in the universe unless God allowed it. But there's another sense, a sense that is often more important to us in our daily life. We are responsible for our sin. And therefore, if God should choose to discipline us, or if God should choose to bring judgment against a particular sin, that it may rightly follow from that person's sin. And it would be wrong. It would be irreverent. It would be against the Lord for that person in some fatalistic sense to say, well, this judgment was ordained by God and nobody can do anything about it. No, it was your sin That prompted the discipline or the judgment of God. And therefore, there is some sense in which truly you bear responsibility. So, who's responsible? God or man? Let's say that often the question is, yes, each party has some responsibility to bear. And we need to understand it in that context. Thus, my comments on Judges chapter 21 verses two and three. Thank you again for your question, Autumn. I hope that helps. And I would like to say, um, maybe just add a moment before we go on. One of the things that we're really grateful for in the work that I do with Enduring Word is that we energetically take the Bible commentary that I have in the English language and we translate it into other languages because I think that good Bible resources are always welcome, uh, but especially they're welcome uh, in places where it's more difficult to get good Bible resources. This last weekend, uh, I was honored to go up to Calvary Spokane, Calvary Chapel Spokane, and speak there for their Sunday services. And one of the reasons why I was so happy to do it is because the good people at Calvary Chapel Spokane, Pastor Ken Ortiz there, They are energetically sponsoring and coordinating the work of translating my Bible commentary into Russian. Now, they're putting it into print books. Here's uh, my commentary through Hebrews translated into Russian. Here's my commentary on the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And here's my commentary on Revelation. And they have several other titles as well and many more in the pipeline right now. Again, this is a focused, energetic effort to get my commentary translated into the Russian language. And I am very, very grateful for their work in that regard. So thank you, people of Calvary Spokane, 
Pastor Ken Ortiz and your whole team up there. I am so grateful for this work. And these Russian resources are presently available on Calvary Chapel, excuse me, on on, uh, EnduringWord.com. You can just look under the commentary menu and you'll find the Russian link. Uh, But they're going to be increasingly made available there. We're happy to provide these Bible resources globally for as many languages as we can. And that gives me another reason to welcome and greet our TWR360 audience. So pleased, of course, that you could join us today. TWR360 is that great ministry, Trans World Radio, that not only has a great shortwave radio presence throughout the world, but they also have a great online presence. And their website is TWR360. We are happy to be live streaming through that website right now, as well, of course, as our YouTube channel. So with all of that out of the way, let's go now to the questions that have come in on the live chat forwarded to me by our moderator, Devin. John asks this question. Will the 144,000 Jews that God seals and the tribulation saints get their glorified bodies at the end of the great tribulation or after the millennial reign of Christ? John, this is a great question. And I always like to address these questions relevant to biblical prophecy or sometimes what we would call eschatology. I always like to acknowledge that there is a divergence of opinion on these questions within the broader Christian world. And I have no problem answering it from my understanding of eschatology or biblical prophecy to the best of my understanding of what the Bible says. But I just always want to acknowledge that there's a variety of perspectives on this within the broader Christian world. John, in my perspective, it will happen. Those who survive what we call the Great Tribulation will receive their glorified bodies at the end of the Great Tribulation. That's my understanding of it. I don't think that the scriptures are clear enough on it to be absolutely dogmatic, but I think that the evidence weighs in favor of that that right at or right before the glorious return of Jesus Christ, what we would call the Battle of Armageddon, they would receive their glorified bodies. Um, I think that the resurrection described after the millennial reign of Christ is actually the resurrection uh, unto condemnation that Jesus described in the Gospel of John. It's not a resurrection of those unto eternal life in heaven, but actually unto judgment of those who will go to the lake of fire. So, John, my perspective is that those who survive the great tribulation, that is the 144,000 and the tribulation saints, they will receive their resurrection bodies at the glorious return of Christ, uh, coinciding with what we often call the battle of Armageddon. Hope that answers that question for you, John. And let me go on to the next question from God Child, who asked this question. Speaking from your commentary on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, how is the idea that the human race deserves the wrath of God revealed from heaven? Well, Godchild, I would just simply say this. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, communicates the idea that the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all kinds of sin. And we would just say, we see judgment for sin in our present age. Now, 
there will be a greater revelation of the wrath of God and all the judgment that that entails. Make no mistake about it. There is a greater revelation of the wrath of God to come at the end of the age. But make no mistake about it. The wrath of God is revealed in the present tense. Listen, people are not blessed by a sinful lifestyle. Oh, look, I know that there's some outliers out there. There are some people who live terribly sinful and rebellious lives, and by all outward observance, they have no problems, and they die in their sleep and never seem to pay any penalty for the sin in this earth. Now, if there are such people, they are few and far between. Most people experience the penalty of their sin in the here and now. Friends, the penalty for sexual immorality is all around us. In broken lives, in broken families, in ruined relationships, in jealousy, in wrath and anger, the penalty, the wrath for addictions is present all around us. The brokenness that pervades our world in many cases are vivid examples of the wrath of God against sin right now in the here and now in the matter of the consequences that people bear for going against God's order, God's law, if you want to say. Let's remember that God has built sin to where it has an inherent consequence within it. And so you can say, if that sense alone, if not in many other senses, the wrath of God against sin is revealed right now against sinners. Now, will it be revealed in a greater sense at the end of the age? Absolutely so. So that's simply how I would say that is at least one way, if not many other ways, that the wrath of God is revealed against sin right in the here and now. Next question comes from Kehech, asks, concerning the tongue, what does it mean when it says in James chapter 3, verse 6, that it is set on fire by hell? Kehech, I would explain it this way. What James means in James chapter 3, verse 6, when he says that the tongue is like a fire set, you know, sparked, set on fire by hell. It's that people can speak on behalf of the devil and have no idea that that's what they're doing. Now, it could happen very casually. Uh, somebody speaks words of slander or criticism or cover-up or just ungodliness, and without even being aware of it, they are functioning as a spokesman of hell itself, of the devil himself. If you want a concrete example of this, think of Peter when Jesus revealed to Peter that he was going to go, and to the rest of the disciples, that he was going to go to the cross and be crucified and be rejected by the religious leaders. That he would die a painful and shameful death on a cross. And that he would rise again three days later. Uh, Peter 
told the Lord, no, no, Lord, may it never be so. Peter rebuked Jesus. And what did Jesus reply with? He said, get behind me, Satan. Now, nobody thinks that at that moment, Peter was actually demon-possessed in the sense that we classically think of demon position, possession, I should say. Yet in some sense, he was being an unwitting spokesman for the heart, the thinking, the mind of the devil himself in that moment. So I think it's simply a way to say that we can unwittingly be the spokesman for hell and Satan himself And this is why we need to be very careful with the use of our tongue, with the words that we say. And look, friends, let's just be honest about it. There is a lot of hellish destruction that happens by what we say, by what we post on social media, by uh, the opinions that we pass on to other people. We need to take care that we are people of the truth, and that we are the people who speak what is right and good and edifying. That doesn't mean that every word's going to be easy and smooth for others to hear. No, sometimes the exposure of the work of darkness is hard for people to hear, but it's right before God to do it. We just need to be careful that we are speaking truth and not lies, and that we are representing God in what we say to the very best of our imperfect ability and that we are not even unwittingly being spokesmen of hell. Uh, as James said in James chapter 3, verse 6, that our tongue may be set on fire by hell itself. Thank you, K. Heck, for that question. Next question comes from Adonis. Adonis asks this question. What is the difference between ordinances, statutes, commands, commandments, decrees, and laws? Okay, Adonis, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. I'm going to tell you to go to EnduringWord.com, go to the Bible commentary, and go to the description at the beginning of Psalm 119. Matter of fact, if you don't mind, I'm going to do that together here. We're going to go online here. Let me see if I can figure out how to do this. Um, We're going to go online here to Psalm 119. Excuse me just for a moment while I figure this out. We're going to go to Psalm 119 here on my commentary. And Psalm 119 is a psalm concerning the greatness and the glory of God's word, of course. We're going to click away that subscribe to the YouTube channel advisory, of course. (laughs) And we're also going to click OK on that. Now, here I discuss the eight basic words that are used to describe the scriptures in this passage. Law, word, judgments, testimonies, commandments, statutes, precepts, word, or a different Hebrew word for word right there. And What I want to do is to just let you know that um, these are ultimately terms that describe the Word of God in different ways. I I don't know if you've ever heard this. Now, I've heard that this is just an anecdote. It's not actually true. 
But they say that the Inuit people, uh, sometimes known as Eskimos, people who are the natives of the far northern regions of Canada and such, and Alaska, it said that they have, I don't know, 20 words for snow. Now, again, I've told that this isn't actually true, but let's just take it as an analogy. They have 20 different words for snow. It describes wet snow. It describes uh, dry snow. It describes heavy snow, light snow, on and on, because they live with a lot of snow. Let me tell you this, Adonis. The ancient Hebrews were so focused on the revelation of God, the word of God, that they described the word of God in many different senses. So they describe it as things just like you're talking about, ordinances, statutes, commands, commandments, decrees, and laws. Sometimes they use those terms in a very specific sense, such as a law being very similar to a statute or a command. But other times they're using them in a very general sense just to describe God's authoritative revelation to us. They are synonyms for the word of God. Mostly, that's how it's used throughout the entirety of Psalm 119. And you might say, well, why do they use so many words for the word of God there? Why don't they just say the word, the word, the word, the word? Well, it's because God's a good writer. And good writers don't repeat themselves too often. They know how to use words that mean the same things, but are a different word to give a little bit of a different nuance. But again, just for the sake of good writing. So for the most part, Adonis, these words are just synonyms, words that say the same thing as the word of God, the, author the authoritative revelation of God, the scriptures. And here's what I would tell you. Go to my commentary on uh, Acts, excuse me, Acts, uh, Psalm 119. Take a look at the introduction there and you'll see a specific description for what those words specifically mean. Thanks again for that question there, Adonis. Let me go on to the next question that comes from West. It says, if Judas would have repented instead of suicide, could he have made it to heaven? West, you're bringing, of course, a hypothetical question. And I find this hypothetical question intriguing. If Judas would have repented, could he have gone to heaven? And Judas, I'm just going to, Judas, West, excuse me, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. I could answer that hypothetical from either side. So let me answer it on both sides. First, I'm going to answer it on the side that says, yes, Judas could have been forgiven if he would have repented and made it to heaven. You know, sometimes we draw the contrast between Judas and Peter. Both of them, in some sense, denied their Lord but Peter repented, Judas did not. So it brings up the question you're asking here, as if Judas would have repented, could he have been saved and gone to heaven? Well, listen, we would say there is a wideness to the mercy of God. Jesus says, I will not refuse anybody who comes to me. And we understand that it means the one who comes to him in terms of faith and repentance. Jesus says he will in no wise cast that one out. So we can say in that sense, yes, yes, Judas could have been forgiven his sin. If he would have truly repented, if he would have truly believed, he can be covered by all of that. 
I'm looking through the window here to my good friends, Lance Ralston, and to my friend Chuck Musselwhite. And they're here because we're going to have a little bit of a meeting afterwards. And they're just saying hi through the window. Hello, guys. These guys who are on the board of Enduring Word. I'm very grateful for those men. Okay, so that's the question right there. Now, um, yes, I can argue from that sense that Judas could have been forgiven and gone to heaven. But let me argue it from the other side there, Wes. Jesus called Judas by a very interesting title. He called him the son of perdition. Perdition is kind of a fancy word for destruction. In other words, he was destined for this destruction. And if I argue it from that sense, I say, there's no way. There's no way that Judas could have ever made it to heaven he was destined for this. He is the son of perdition or destruction. So I almost want to say, what side do you want to argue it from? Come on, we could do it from either side. I lean to the side of saying he could have been forgiven, but this is purely a hypothetical. It did not work out that way. And we need to ultimately deal with things as they are and as they happened, not just according to a hypothetical. So, West, again, I hope that explains it for you, that question. If Judas would have repented instead of suicide, could he have made it to heaven? I could argue it from either side, but if you really pressed me for an answer, I would say yes to the hypothetical, even though I understand the alternative argument that says no way. Moving on to the next question from Jesper. Jesper, hi Jesper, I know you're not watching this live, but... I know you're going to watch it later, so happy to deal with your question. I sometimes hear people say how the corrupt lifestyle of the world is or exists because the church is lukewarm. And if the church was really on fire, the world would look different. But is that really true? And then he quotes a verse here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 13 let me look that up here. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 13 says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesper, I think your question touches on a very important issue. Look, we as Christians live with the sense. It's a, something of a painful sense that the church is not all that it should be. Don't we understand that? Look, you don't, you don't have to really kind of persuade Christians to that idea. Is the Christian all that it should be? All that, the, excuse me, is the church all that it should be? No. The church fails in many ways. The, the, the church doesn't love as it should. It's not holy as it should. It doesn't reach out to the world as it should. It doesn't, you know, well, I could go on and on. There are many failings and weaknesses to the church, the community of God's people in the world today. And sometimes Christians have this sense that if only we would get our act together, then the world would come to Christ. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. Jesus did say, that a church full of love would be a good witness to the world. We have examples in the book of Acts where a vibrant, living, holy church was a good witness to the world. But we must never bring ourselves to the understanding. We should never think 
that the only reason that the world does not believe is because the church doesn't have its act together. Friends, there is more than one reason why the world does not believe. And in seasons when the church was more loving, more unified, more holy, more outreaching to the world, even in seasons when the church was better off than it was today, many in the world still hated them and rejected what the church offered to the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, as Jesus explained, and other passages in the New Testament explain, they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. So this is something that actually we have to be mature and rightly divide the word of truth and understand that there is a sense in which both can be true. Would more people in this world today come to Christ if the church was better and holier and more loving and more unified and more outreaching than it was? Yes. If the church was more faithful to its truth and to its mission? Yes, I don't doubt that at all. But we must never simply blame the church for the unbelief of the world. And may I say that in this day and age, I think there's too much of that. I think there's too much hand-wringing and head-shaking over the church saying it's because we're so messed up, that's why the world rejects Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying it's irrelevant. There is a connection, but in the main, in the main, the church represents the Lord imperfectly, but the world rejects the gospel because their deeds are evil. Thank you for that question, Jesper. Going on to another question from Lynette. Lynette says, do believers get raised from the dead in Christ at the rapture? Okay, Lynette, um, your question has a lot of different layers to it. So let me unpack it here. Well, yes, um, there will be believers raised from the dead, raised in Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks about. It talks about the dead in Christ being raised first, then we who are alive and on the earth being caught up together with the Lord in the air, meeting him in the clouds. That's where we get this idea of the rapture, which is simply coming from a Latin word describing that catching away, uh, that, 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 that coming of the Lord to catch away his church there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, since 1 Thessalonians 4 clearly also connects that with the resurrection of believers who are already dead, the two events are connected. What we don't completely understand is what is the present status of those who die in the Lord right now? And here's some possible, number one, we know that they are with the Lord. Paul said it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there's many other passages that talk about this idea, but make no mistake about it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that those who die in the Lord today and all throughout history are with the Lord. Now, 
are they with the Lord as disembodied spirits or are they with the Lord in their resurrection bodies? The idea that they're with the Lord as disembodied spirits is simply this, that they're waiting for their resurrection bodies that will not happen until the end of the age, until the catching away of the church, then everybody who's in the Lord will receive their resurrection body at the same time. That's a possibility, but it may also be that because of the way that time interacts with eternity, that when a believer passes from this life to the next, it is the end of the age for them. That's the explanation I lean towards because in some of the passages, Paul, in speaking of the resurrection, he reveals to us that the status of being a disembodied spirit doesn't seem to be so great. And so I would lean towards the idea that those believing dead receive their resurrection bodies right away because of the way that the temporal or the time world connects with the world of eternity, that when they die, it is, if you want to say, the appearing of the Lord, the catching away of the church, the second coming in its broadest understanding for them right then. So again, that's how I would answer that question, Lynette. Barry asks this question. Uh, When Christ says, peace I leave you, not as the world gives, John 14, 27, what is the difference between Christ's peace and the world's peace? Man, Barry, what a great question. I want to once again compliment our viewing audience on the tremendous questions that they ask. Um, What's the difference between the world's kind of peace and the peace that Jesus Christ has to give us? Barry, I would simply describe this, that the peace of Jesus Christ is founded on utter truth and reality. The truth of the matter, the reality of the matter, is that in Christ, God has reconciled his people to himself. And that is the source of all true peace. We are no longer at enmity or battling against or or in disagreement with God in any sense at all. We are truly reconciled with him and we can have peace in its fullest dimension. That is the peace of Christ. Here's another thing. Think about the peace, not only that Jesus gives on account of his reconciliation between God and man, but also think the peace that Christ has. That's another way to understand the peace of Christ. Can I tell you something very straightforwardly? Jesus Christ is not anxious about anything. He has complete peace right now enthroned at the right hand of God the Father on high in heaven. He has complete peace, complete uh, satisfaction over everything. He's not worried about a single thing. No, the peace that Jesus gives us is not only the peace that he has made by his reconciling work at the cross, it's also the peace that he enjoys being at complete peace, knowing that God's plan can never be thwarted. That's the peace that Jesus gives. Now, what kind of peace does the world give? Well, it gives the peace of uh, having a lot of money in the bank. Hey, how's that working out for you? How secure is that? It gives the peace of having a comfortable life around you. Listen, 
not only can those things uh, be taken away at any moment, but we also understand that those things that mark the peace that the world gives only last as long as we are in this world. It is not a peace unto eternity. So the peace that the world offers is actually a very fragile peace, and it is also a very temporary kind of peace. The peace that Jesus gives is eternal, it's real, it's everlasting, it's founded on truth, the greatest truths ever. That's the peace that Jesus gives. Great question, Barry. Let me move on to the next few questions. Whitney asks, I recently heard my pastor say that the unpardonable sin is to reject Christ. Haven't we all rejected Christ at some point in some way? Well, Whitney, that's a great question. Okay, let, let me follow up on this. Um, your pastor gave, I believe, a true description just what I would call an incomplete description. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject Christ, but it's to reject him finally. It's to reject him constantly. It's to reject him repeatedly without repentance. That is the sin that God will not forgive, to reject Jesus in a settled consistent, if you want to say eternal way. We know that Jesus connected the unpardonable sin with what Jesus called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And when we understand what Jesus himself said the work of the Holy Spirit was, the work of the Holy Spirit was to testify to the world about Jesus and to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit does his work of telling the world about Jesus and about our sin, and to reject, finally, in a settled, repeated, constant way, to reject that testimony of the Holy Spirit, to reject Jesus, is to commit that sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why it is such a serious thing to have a settled, consistent, lasting rejection of Jesus Christ. It is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it is the unforgivable sin. Now, the great news is this. No one need fear that they've committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you can fix that right now. How do you do it? Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you will listen to what the Holy Spirit tells you today, what the Holy Spirit tells you through God's word, what the Holy Spirit tells you through the preaching of the gospel, what the Holy Spirit tells you by the witness to your own spirit, if you will listen to what the Holy Spirit tells you about Jesus Christ and your need for him, you can be forgiven today and be assured that your rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus is not settled because you've accepted it. It's not constant because you've changed that. It's not permanent because you no longer reject what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus Christ. I don't want anybody to live under that terrible burden of feeling that they've rejected the Holy Spirit.
in a permanent sense because you can change that today. Okay, let me continue on. N asks a question. Why does the New King James use the word charity instead of the word love in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, of course, is the famous love chapter. And what I understand is when we take a look at this, um, I'm taking a look right now at the New King James Version. And I just want you to say, uh, and, and I assume you mean the New King James Version and not the King James Version. I'll talk about it in both senses. But the New King James Version, I'm looking at right now, does use the word love, the word agape, as it's translated there in 1 Corinthians 13. The word charity was used in the King James Version, I think, for a poetic sense. Often, the King James Version translates the ancient Greek word agape or agape as love, but sometimes it mixes it up for sort of good writing quality, and it expresses it as charity, I think, simply to grant... Now, when the King James Version was written way back in the days of the 16th century, when the King James, or excuse me, the 17th century, um, when the King James Version was written, when it was translated, uh, charity didn't mean the same thing that we mean by it today. It had a meaning much closer to the simple meaning of love that we would regard it today. So again, the New King James Version, that's the Bible version that I usually use and that my commentary is based on. It does use the word love. The King James Version uses the word charity for two reasons. First of all, I think just for a poetic um, quality there. But secondly, the word charity had a different connotation back in 1611 when the King James Version was translated and published. All right, now we come to our last question here from Isaac, asks, which Paul is a wretched man in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, converted or unconverted one in your opinion? Okay, Isaac, it's a good question. It's a bit of a controversial question because there are Bible teachers and commentators that I respect who have a different opinion on this than I do. But I'll just give you my opinion because you're asking me the question. I believe Romans chapter 7 refers to Paul as a converted man. Again, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Let me read that for you. Paul says in that particular verse, 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know some people, again, some commentators and Bible teachers I respect, they would very strongly teach Paul is writing that as a unredeemed man before he was a believer. But I think that when you take all of Romans chapter 7 into account, Paul would only have the struggle he has as a redeemed man. That's my take on it. In other words, his earnest desire to walk rightly before God and to obey God, that sounds to me like the struggle that a redeemed man or woman has. I would define Paul's problem in Romans chapter 7 as this. He's a redeemed man. He's a saved man. 
He wants to do the will of God, but he's looking to self instead of Jesus. And friend, let me tell you, when you're looking to self instead of looking to Jesus, that's always trouble. We need to be men and women in Christ who have our sight on Jesus and not on ourselves. For me, it's interesting to look through in Romans chapter 7, how in what I regard as an exaggerated sense, Paul's referring to I, me, my, again and again. Again, when you look at it, I think Paul's exaggerating to give us a sense of, Paul, you're so focused on yourself. And really Paul's saying, that's my problem. I am a believer. I am a redeemed man or a redeemed woman in, in somebody else's case, not Paul's case, okay, he, he was a man. I am a redeemed man, but my focus is on myself. I will only find some measure of victory in my Christian life when I put my focus upon Jesus Christ himself and not upon me, myself. So yes, Isaac, I regard that as being Paul's struggle as a believer, as a redeemed, a converted man. Well, that brings us to the end of our questions today. I want to say a great big thank you to Devin, our moderator, to each and every one of you who have tuned in today. So pleased that you've been able to come and join us today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to do this with you week after week, and uh, God willing, and if I live, I'm going to be here with you next Thursday to do it again. I'm looking forward to it already. I do just want to thank you for your prayers for the ongoing work of translation of my Bible commentary into Russian and into the many other languages that we have active translation projects on. Farsi, Arabic, Chinese, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, French, German. Uh, God's doing a great work in all these different translation projects. Thank you for your prayers. Thanks to those of you who choose to support the work. That's always a blessing. But I just want to say thank you especially for your support of this work in and through your prayers. See you next week. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.